Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Double Play Podcast. I'm Jack Smith, joined today by my stupendous co-host, Ryan Donahue, here to talk to you about some more free agency moves, uh, another trade or, or two, and an interview at the end of the episode with former Dodgers GM Ned Coletti, current Sportsnet uh, LA analyst and guy who really kickstarted in motion a lot of the Dodgers' success. So, Ryan, excited for this episode. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, uh, I'm doing great. Dodgers baseball starts today. And uh, since our last episode, Dodgers had a big acquisition. You want to get into that right away? Yeah, we can start straight off with that one. Freddie Freeman, former first baseman of the Atlanta Braves, who we speculated last episode, probably going to the Dodgers, ends up in L.A., signs a six-year, $162 million deal, $27 annually with the Dodgers. Uh He'll play first. Muncie can move over to DH. Lux and Taylor can move a second. But either way, whichever way you want to think about it, no matter what your opinion on it, the Dodgers got a hell of a lot better. That lineup is so dangerous right now. I mean, there's just like too many guys. You're going to have Lux, who's he's a great player. You're going to have him coming off the bench. And Chris Taylor, who will be a starter on probably the majority of every other team. You'll have him platooning at second and left and sometimes coming off the bench. And so you look at that lineup from one to nine, especially with the DH. Now that lineup is very dangerous. And uh, I would not want to face that lineup come out uh, any time of the season for that matter. It's just really scary. I'm not looking forward to the giants facing that lineup. It was hard enough. Last no, you year. Shouldn't be. It was hard enough last year. And now you're, you're getting Muncie back healthy. I know they had him healthy for most of the season, but you're getting him back healthy for the season. Trey Turner, I would say, is even better than Corey Seager. Uh, Freddie Freeman's better than Edwin Rios and whoever they would have had playing first base. So it's an, an insane lineup that I am not looking forward to having to get through in the National League in the NL West. Yeah, and I would love to see the Dodgers make another move for pitching, but I mean... That's just me wanting to be spoiled. Just I, at this point, the Dodgers, they've failed so much except for 2020, but I just want no room for error. I just want everything handed to me. How about just be happy with Freddie Freeman? Ace fans have to <laughs> lose everyone that they have every single year. The Yankees this so far this offseason haven't, haven't been able to land anyone other than Josh Donaldson. So just be happy with maybe the best first baseman in baseball in this offseason. I won't be happy until there's a ring on their, their finger. Do you not count a 60 game ring? No, I do. I want, I want more. You want more? I it's guess all you're about chasing, what, I guess you're chasing what three in five years. So all about what, what you have done for me lately. Yeah, I get that. Um, one thing that I was pretty interested in when it came to Freddie Freeman was the raise apparently offered him six years, $140 million, which is a great sign. And I really wanted to focus on that because we've heard a lot and talked a lot about teams in the smaller markets who are not, willing to give contracts that big. We look at the A's we've looked at other teams and the Rays have been one of those teams, one of the small ball teams who has an analytic approach and doesn't really offer the big contracts ponying up and offering six years, $140 million to Freddie Freeman to try and bring home a world series championship. Something I'm super excited to see from Tampa Bay. Very uncharacteristic for the Rays, but in a good way. And uh, you're right. The Rays, they don't do that. They play they play their smaller name guys who have success in the analytics, like you said. And to see them try after a, after Freddie Freeman is a great sign for the future. Maybe they go after more 
more big big names in the future as they really try and chase the World Series title. They have always had success in terms of regular season record, but haven't had much success in the playoffs other than the trip to the World Series in 2020. But uh, it's really good to see for the Rays and uh, excited for what that means for the Rays in, in the future. And I know that's kind of the the process that they've done. You look at the Philadelphia 76ers, like trusting the process. And it's really worked out. I was thinking back the other day when I was thinking about how Freddie Freeman would fit on that team and just how many stars they have that I don't think we really recognize in Brandon Lau, who's one of the best second baseman in baseball. Wander Franco has the potential to be a top 10 player in baseball after this, after his pretty much first season. Uh, you have Tyler Glasnow, Randy Rosarena, and a host of other people that make a lot of impact like Mike Zanino, who against lefties is one of the best catchers in baseball. So they've got a lot of pieces that I think we often forget about. So adding Freddie Freeman would have been nice, but this team's still going to compete. Absolutely. And uh, it won't help that the AL East is maybe the toughest division in baseball, but the Rays, they're always going to compete They're They always find a way to win. And I think it'll be AL East and the Rays will be exciting this season. On the other side of competition, I think this year will be the Colorado Rockies, which makes it make even less sense that they went out and signed Chris Bryant to a seven-year, $182 million contract. Did that one make any sense to you? Not one bit. And uh, we made, I made a TikTok about that one, about how, like, good for Chris Bryant, I guess. I mean, he's not going to be contributing to winning baseball at all, but he got a big contract. I think it was uh, $26 million a year. So for seven years and good for him, but I mean, he, he has his world series ring. Maybe he was just chasing a bag at this point, but uh, for the Rockies doesn't make much sense either. I mean, you give up a guy, you trade Arenado, you're letting story go after not trading story at the deadline, which doesn't make sense. So after you, I, I just don't know what their plan is here. Cause I mean, we know the direction they're headed, but I don't know if they re really recognize that giving Chris Bryant $26 million a year for seven years. Uh, what are your thoughts on the move the Rockies made for Chris Bryant? Yeah, I think we all recognize the path that the Rockies are going to go down, which is a rebuilding path. And I don't think they're going to be competitive for a couple of years because even their farm system isn't the best farm system. It might be still the worst farm system in the NL West. So they've got a lot to do in the future. And I just don't understand where Chris Bryant fits into that. Maybe they just want to get people in the seats while they're still rebuilding. And maybe Chris Bryant just wants to hit in Coors. But I don't really understand this for both sides because Chris Bryant has gone from the Cubs where he won a World Series to the Giants where he was competing for a World Series to now being with the Rockies where I don't think he's ever going to get that chance. So it just doesn't make a whole ton of sense to me. Um, I'm sure each side has their reasons. Um, they're just not as obvious as some of the other signings that we've gotten so far. And another team that is recognizing their rebuild. And we saw that before last episode, but the A's traded Matt Chapman to the Blue Jays for a pretty decent, pr pretty good return. And they got Gunnar Hoagland. Is that Hoagland that? Yep. Uh, he, he was the seventh on the A's list. Now uh, they got Kevin Smith, Zach Logue and Kirby Sneed. So uh, Blue Jays make another move. The A's keep, keep selling. What are your thoughts on the Matt Chapman to the Blue Jays? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great move, honestly, for both sides, because I, I don't think the A's were all that happy with Matt Chapman's season last year. And with the 
trades that they had already made, it was clear they weren't going to be competitive. So once you make that first move to trade away Matt Olson or Chris Bassett, then you should trade everybody. It just makes more sense. And you're able to pick up three guys who slot into your top 30 prospects. Hoagland comes in seventh, Kevin Smith, 15, and, and Zach Logue is their 22nd ranked prospect right now. And for the Blue Jays, I think it makes a ton of sense. They didn't really have a mainstay at third base. Uh, and this brings some tremendous defense and a bat that in Toronto, I think can produce a lot of power home runs and doubles. And so he may strike out a lot. He may not be a four hitter or five hitter like he would have been asked to be in Oakland, but I think he'd be a great six, seven, eight hitter in the Blue Jays lineup. The Blue Jays, yeah, they, they look scary right now. I mean, you add a guy at third base, who platinum gold glove winner, and uh, I think is the best defender in the MLB right now, has the potential at this pace to be one of the greatest defenders of all time. And there, it really is potential for the bat, too. I, we have we saw flashes of it a little bit in Oakland a few years ago, but been a little disappointed with the bat in the last couple of years. But he really does have potential, and maybe – like you said, slotting down to that six, seven, eight range in the order, maybe that'll help him. And maybe he's a guy who just needs a little bit of a, a boost and like needs to prove himself a little bit. And maybe being the guy on the A's didn't help. And maybe now he'll have something to prove in that lineup with a lineup full of sluggers. And uh, hopefully we can see the bat match. We know Matt Chapman has back to what we know he can do. And I think it makes more sense because when they were going after Freddie Freeman and Kyle Schwarber, they were planning, I think, using Vlad sometimes at third base. And I just don't think that would have been as good as having Vlad at first and having Matt Chapman at third. Of course, you want to have Freddie Freeman's bat in there at the same time as Vlad's. But on defense, I think this is a clear upgrade. Matt Chapman, a great move for the Blue Jays. And they're still, I think, looking into Jose Ramirez to possibly play second base. Whether that happens or not this close to the season, I don't think so. I think if I were to guess right now, I think Jose Ramirez is still a Cleveland guardian come opening day, but if they can make that move, it would make them even more scary to a team that we've been thinking is maybe the front runners in the AL East. I think uh sidetrack, getting sidetracked a little bit. That's the first time I've heard Cleveland guardians said out loud. That's true. So uh, the new era in Cleveland, but yeah, for Matt Chapman, the blue Jays, they're going to be a, Forced to be reckoned with this year. We can get to another trade, which happened this morning. We're recording this on Friday, March 18th. Luke Voigt was traded to the Padres for right-handed pitcher, right-handed pitcher Justin Lange, I think it is, or Lange. Never heard the name uh, pronounced, so I'm going to try my best. But he was the Padres' eighth overall prospect. So for a player that it looked like New York wanted to get rid of, a pretty decent return. Yeah, and Luke Voigt, he was a guy who kind of spoke out a little bit last season. He wanted out when they had Anthony, Anthony Rizzo. Now they signed Anthony Rizzo for a few years. It was clear that he was probably going to be moved and it's good for him. He wanted out. The Yankees kind of wanted to get rid of him, but it doesn't really make sense. I mean, the Yankees get back a 20 year old pitcher. So he's not super young. Who's unproven in the majors. And they trade a guy who could provide a lot of power. And I mean, I know you have Stanton to play DH, but Luke Voigt, I think he could have found a spot in that lineup, even if maybe he didn't want to be there. But as for the Padres, it's a great pickup. And I think maybe this will lead to maybe Hosmer trying to get moved if anyone will t take on Eric Hosmer. But it's good for the Padres. They get a new first baseman and a guy who can play DH since they need it now. But I think uh, 
good move for both sides, but I think the Yankees maybe could have used him as well. Yeah, I, I think it probably comes down to him just wanting out in, in New York. For the, for the Padres, they've been looking for a righty power bat. They've been looking into Nick Castellanos. They've been looking into Jorge Soler, looking into Seiya Suzuki. They get Luke Voigt, who I think is just as good, and I think he slots in perfectly for the Padres. I feel like he fits what that lineup was needing. It does seem, if he's ranked as their eighth prospect, does seem as a little bit of a rich return for the Yankees. For, for Luke Voigt, but if, if, they're with the, if the Padres wanted him, I think it makes sense to go out and get your guy, someone in that lineup that can provide power um, and be dangerous, especially if you're going to be missing out on Fernando Tatis for a couple months. And some other moves we saw, I'll just list, list them off real quick that we're not going to get super into, but say Suzuki to the Cubs, uh, Kyle Schwarber to the Phillies, and Jack Pearson to, to the Giants. I know the Giants went out and got a left-handed bat, so uh, any of those three moves that you particularly like yeah i think say suzuki to the cubs i made a tiktok about it i think it's a great move for them a guy who can if he's as good as people think he can be and even if he's not quite as good as shohei otani but he brings a little bit of what that is he can be a great face of the franchise i think they've gotten two guys who are really polarizing and could be adored by fans and him and marcus stroman and i think he fits the lineup really well if they're able to go out and get a guy like carlos correa i think it's a pretty good move to match and that's three big moves that i think really benefit the cubs this offseason and i think i don't remember the exact contract but i think they were paying him upwards of a 15 million dollars a year range Mm -hmm. and i had someone ask me like uh you think that they're overpaying and I don't think they will overpay. I, th- I think maybe for a guy, they maybe could have got a little cheaper just because the track record of guys coming to the MLB internationally, but I think he will be well worth that contract. I think he'll be a solid player for the Cubs and I think they'll end up underpaying based off his success that he'll have with them. Uh, and to move on to who's left, we've got Carlos Correa still out there. Trevor story is still out there. Nick Castellano still out there though. I feel like he might, pretty much be a Philly at this point, which when you look back at Kyle Schwarber, you're bringing in the two guys who I said would really benefit from the NL adding a DH. But I think Keith Law had my favorite tweet saying, do the Phillies know they can only have one DH at a time? It would, it would add a, another guy to their lineup who's just not good on defense, but that, that lineup would be looking scary with all the powerful bats. Kenley Jansen, Michael Conforto, Jorge Soler, Tommy Pham, a list of guys that are still available on the market. Any of those guys that kind of pique your interest um, about what we've learned? I really think Trevor Story is an interesting name. And right before we started recording, there was a tweet that came out that he's from John Heyman, who's he's down to four teams, the Red Sox, Giants, and two others. And uh, I think I think it also said... He would be open to a position change for a short time for a short time. And I think that'd be good for the Giants. We talked about that a little bit before the show, but I think a move to second base while Brandon Crawford still has short. And I think that could be really good for the Giants and the Giants really want to sustain what the success they had last season. I think that move would be good. The Red Sox, if he'd also be willing to move second base there with Bogarts and Devers and that'd be a scary infield. Uh, we don't know who the two others are. I'm guessing one of them would probably be the Astros if, the, the if they were to miss well. out on Korea and maybe the twins. I also heard some about Cardinals. So we don't know those other two teams, but I'm guessing it's two of those three. 
Yeah, I think that you can take the Phillies out of the running, who I always thought would be a really good fit for Trevor Story, with them looking into Nick Castellanos instead and already bringing in Kyle Schwarber. I think the Astros make sense if they miss out on Correa, which I think we're hearing that it's unlikely he returns to the Astros. So we don't know a whole lot about what's happening with Carlos Correa, but maybe we can pencil him into another team outside of Houston. And I think the Cardinals would be actually a pretty good fit. I think uh, another guy in the infield be a dangerous bat uh, pairing up with Paul Goldschmidt and, and their insane outfield. Yeah, I think, I mean, that would be a great infield and out, insane outfield. Like you said, Arenado, Story and Goldschmidt. And I mean, Yachty can still do some damage occasionally behind the plate, but uh, I think Cardinals would be a great fit. And uh, they, ha- they do have Edmundo Sosa, who is a s- solid, I-, I don't know if he's a prospect anymore, but young guy who can play short. So I wonder where he would fit in if they were to, if Trevor Story were to go to the Cardinals. Yeah, I think they'd have to figure it out. But with a player of Trevor Story's caliber, I think it'd be a good fit. I really do want him on the Giants, though. Farhan Zaidi the other day said that they feel pretty set with the positional group, but I don't know how much I believe that if a guy like Trevor Story is willing to sign a one-year, two-year deal to play second and then possibly work out a deal at short once Brandon Crawford retires and you move Marco Luciano to third base when he comes up, I think that the Giants would be interested in Trevor Story. And I feel like with the addition of Freddie Freeman at the Dodgers, there might be more of a, might be more urgency to bring in a guy like Trevor Story to combat that move. Yeah, I couldn't have said that better myself. The urgency felt throughout the NL West and the entire NL to try and take down the Dodgers. But moving on from free agents, we saw spring training games start yesterday. We mentioned that we were recording on Friday, but uh, there was only four games underway, two of them being split squad, but baseball's back. And uh, what are your thoughts on baseball being back? Were you able to watch any of the games and what did you think? I was able to tune in for a little bit of the Red Sox and Twins game, which was not much of a game as the Red Sox won 14 to one. And I saw highlights and clips from the other ones. I want to focus on the White Sox because two guys, Andrew Vaughn, who's a big prospect coming out of Cal. And if he can break out, could be a huge piece to this already great White Sox team in the first game, two for three with a homer. And it's funny because on his homer, he threw his head down like he popped it up and it ended up carrying out of the yard by a decent amount too. So insane pop in his bat. And if he can figure it out and become the player that we all thought he could be coming out of college at just another insane piece to this already loaded White Sox roster. Yeah. I think Andrew Vaughn, he could break out and I think he has potential to be that next great player for the White Sox. And kind of looking back, I remember last season in fantasy baseball, uh, I was offered a trade for Andrew Vaughn and I was like, are you, I, it was like a pretty big return. I was like, are you kidding me? I'm not trading a package around Andrew Vaughn. And I don't know, maybe that comes back to bite me because he could be a good player. Yeah. And I think he, I think he'll be more of a player once Jose Abreu's out in Chicago and he can slot in at first base, but he's shown a lot of positional versatility and with his bat and his hit tool, which was very prominent and which is what allowed him to get to the majors so quickly. Uh, I think he can really do some damage and with this White Sox lineup, if he can fit in anywhere and provide some value, that's just going to be another piece on top. The other guy was uh, Yoleski Cespedes, Yoana Cespedes, brother. It's a hit a home run as well. And so it's interesting to see the Cespedes family tradition keep and push down the line with his success. Yeah, that was a, uh, we haven't seen much of UNS Cespedes recently, but it's good to see his 
younger brother, I guess, having success, hitting a home run in his first spring game this season. So that was interesting to see. And uh, maybe he'll pan out for the White Sox as well and be another guy who can help them maybe a few years down the line. Yeah, so we only had four games yesterday, but we've got 20, 28 teams in action today. My Giants play this uh, nightcap, one of their uh, only free or one of their only games on TV at 7 p.m. tonight on Friday. Logan Webb going to pitch the first two innings, so I'm excited to tune into that. I know you're excited to watch the Dodgers. What are some of your storylines to watch as we get through the spring? Uh, I think the biggest one is seeing these familiar faces who had moved this offseason in new places. And I think it'll be interesting and exciting to see how people fit in and how they perform this spring. I know spring training success doesn't matter all that much, but for new guys, it can, it can be a little bit of importance, see how they're liking their new fit. And, uh, you know, a great example of this is Javi Baez going to the Tigers. We'll see how he fits there. I mean, the Tigers, they're a young team. They've got some, I think they're still one or two years away from competing in the central, especially with the white Sox there now, but I think it'll be a interesting to see for sure. Yeah. I think with Baez, he was adored mostly in Chicago and his play style is very erratic. It is very unique. And so you're more seeing if that, if that meshes with the tigers fan base uh, and if it works in Detroit. And I think the next takeaway that we had and thing to look forward to also works in Detroit is prospects trying to make a name for themselves and also prove that they could be MLB ready. And the Tigers have two of those guys in Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green, who are among MLB pipeline, MLB pipelines, top five prospects. So there's going to be a lot of guys trying to make a name for themselves, trying to get themselves a spot on an MLB roster to start the season. Uh, and, and a lot of guys, this is kind of where we see some of those prospects take the next step uh, and prove that they could be an MLB player. Yeah, and I love that aspect of spring. A lot of people, maybe, I mean, they'll watch the first few innings of the first couple of spring training games. And you're just like, all right, let's just get the season started. But I really like watching spring training games just because, you know, a lot you see those stars in the beginning, but then you see those guys who are playing their heart out, those minor leaguer guys in the back half of games, and they just really are trying to make a name for themselves, earn a spot. And I think that's a really fun aspect of spring and fun to watch. And I think one of the next things that we think is going to be a pretty big storyline, we referenced it earlier, is just the first action for the Cleveland Guardians. They'll have a new look, uh, hopefully a new franchise perspective going forward they're going to get some guys back healthy and Shane Bieber they've still got Jose Ramirez hopefully uh, and so they have a really good farm system too so they'll be one of the more entertaining teams to watch if you want to see prospects but it's going to be our first look at the Cleveland Guardians and something that I'm excited to watch I'm excited as well to watch that but it'll, it'll definitely be interesting seeing the Guardians instead of uh instead of the Indians across their chest but I, I think it's it's something exciting something to watch and I personally like the Guardian's name. I know a lot of people didn't, but I also talked to someone from Cleveland about it because you, you know the story behind the, mm-hmm. it's the, the statues of the Guardians outside the stadium. I was talking to someone from Cleveland about it who's a big, big Guardians fan. He was like, I'm going to be honest, I had no clue those statues existed. So, I mean, I thought it was cool because it like meant something to the city, but maybe it doesn't mean as much as we thought, but I like the name Guardians. Yeah, we'll just see how they look on a baseball field before we make that decision. See how the uniforms look in person. 
the other thing that I want to talk about reference Shane Bieber, we've got some players returning from injury that we're really excited to see back on the dirt. Mike Trout, Jacob deGrom, Justin Verlander, Byron Buxton, Shane Bieber, those guys headline the list, but there's a lot of guys that we're going to get back from injury who missed a lot of games last season, who are looking to be healthy this season that even if it doesn't pan out, we're excited to see them back on a baseball field. I think the guy I'm most excited for is deGrom just because DeGrom, when he's healthy, he is so dominant and it's just so fun to watch. And I don't know if you saw those videos this week of him pitching sim games and Mets hitters, some of them just looking foolish. And some of them, I saw one Jeff McNeil doing a little check swing and fouling it off. And he goes, I touched it. I touched it. And so it just speaks to how dominant DeGrom is. And he's so fun to watch. And another one I like is uh, Verlander. I mean, he's an Astro, but it. Today, he's making his first start Friday, like we said, but it, it is, it's his first start since um, in almost two years, first start since 2020, and he only made one start in 2020, so he'll have first consistent action since 2019, this later this season. There aren't many guys in Major League Baseball that really get you to tune in every five days to see what they did in their start. And I think you just named three or we named three of them. Shane Bieber, who in 2020, you were paying attention every five days to see how many guys he struck out, how well he did. Justin Verlander and Jacob deGrom captivated fans each time they went out on the mound. I I mean, if you can think back to last year and what Jacob deGrom did, it was it was like a movie every time he went on the went out on the mound. It's all you saw about that day because he was just dominant. And it sucked to see him get injured. And I'm excited to hopefully see a full season of Jacob DeGrom. And moving on, the bats, Byron Buxton and Mike Trout. Those are two great guys. I, Mike Trout, obviously, we know he's the best player in baseball. So he, he's always fun to watch. But Byron Buxton, I think he's a guy, when healthy, he can be a top five center fielder in the MLB. Because we saw last year when he was healthy, he was, I think he played 95-ish games, but he was one of the best center fielders in baseball in that time. I mean, we know he has elite defense, but he finally showed what he can do with the bat uh, in his short time last season before he got hurt. But I think he's a guy, if he stays healthy, he can be very dangerous at the plate. And we, like, like I said, we know what he can do on the defensive side as well. And we didn't really understand the moves that the twins were making, whether they wanted to compete or rebuild. But if a guy like Byron Buxton plays up to his potential, it's easy to see them as a, as a competitive team, just based off his production alone, as well as some of the moves they've made. They make a little bit more sense if Byron Buxton can bring them into competition. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on for the spring or for any moves that we've talked about before we get into the interview? Um, No, I think we covered everything. I like uh, just excited for the spring to get, get underway and uh, the season coming up here in just, I think about two weeks. So excited for that. Yeah. I think I said, I saw it was 20 days till opening day today. And I don't know when you guys are going to be getting this episode uh, probably early at the start of next week. So it'll be a couple of days after we record this. So you'll be just about two weeks out from opening day. And we're really excited for that. But the thing we're really excited for is to show you our interview. We got to sit down with uh, Mr. Ned Coletti, who was former Dodgers GM, like I mentioned, a uh, current Sportsnet LA analyst talking about the Dodgers Uh, and also a a scout for the San Jose Sharks, which is our hometown. So it was really cool to get sit down with him, talk baseball, came to my class at at USC and was able to kind of snag him and ask him if he wanted to do an interview. And he was very happy to oblige, sit down with us. We talked, it's about a 30 minute interview and we're super excited. So that's all we got for you guys in this episode. And we really hope you enjoy the interview. So let's not waste any time. You can get right to it.
So we're really excited to welcome uh, Mr. Ned Coletti. He's a former Dodgers GM, a current analyst for Sportsnet LA, and a current scout for the San Jose Sharks. Mr. Coletti, thank you so much for your time. Hey, pleasure to be with you too. So when you came into my class at SC, the one thing I was really wowed by was your story. And I think it's something our viewers really appreciate as well, being baseball fans. And I'm sure some want a career in sports as well. So I already know the answer, but how did you get your start uh, in the world of the MLB front office? Well, it was uh, a bit of a circuitous route. Uh, it was also 40 years ago now. Um, I was a um, journalism major in school and went to a, a junior college. I didn't have the grades or the financial wherewithal to, uh, to be admitted into a four-year school. I'm from Chicago, and so no school in the state of Illinois that was a four-year institution uh, would give me the time of day, you know, and, and, and they were right. I didn't know how to learn yet. I was still a long way from trying to figure everything out. So I got a degree in journalism from Northern Illinois University, and I started my career as a sports writer. And then um, 41 years ago or so, I went to Philadelphia and started covering the National Hockey League and the Philadelphia Flyers. And soon thereafter, uh, I arrived in Philly. Uh, my dad got sick, and my dad ended up with lung cancer at the age of 49 and uh, sadly died uh, at the age of 51. Um, so to go really quickly through it, my family, we decided to start a family uh, when my dad got sick in September of 1980, um, new to Philly, and um, start a family. And uh, we fast forward a year later, in September of 1981, I buy a duplex in Philly. Uh, we share a wall with a neighbor because uh, uh, my wife was eight months pregnant at the time. Uh, she stopped working. She was a legal secretary. Um, I was a sports writer for a Philadelphia newspaper and covering the flyers. And um, our income was probably cut almost in half, not quite in half by her. Uh, deciding and, and me deciding that her she would be best uh, at home as a full-time mom and um, bought this place at 18 percent interest which you know today it's about two or three percent to buy a home and uh, in October our son was born and in December the newspaper folded so I went from having two incomes to having no income I went from uh, you know being a, a, a not a parent uh, to suddenly uh, having a, a newborn. Uh, went from being uh, somebody who rented to somebody who had a mortgage that was astronomical for uh, for that period of time because of the interest rate. And, and most of all, I, ha I had my dad who was sick and, and, and dying back in Chicago. My mom and my dad were uh, the love of each other's life. They uh, grew up together and um, it was it was heartbreaking to, to go through the uh, entire experience. And my mom had never driven a car. We, were, we weren't financially um, prosperous. Um, my dad was a factory worker. Um, and we just, you know, they struggled to, to make ends meet. They lived in a garage the first 10 years of their marriage. I'm the oldest of two, two boys. I came along five years into their marriage. So my first five, six years, I spent living in a garage in Chicago. Uh, not the typical route to the uh, MLB front office, I wouldn't think. But um, I was fortunate in that somebody who I had met in Philly uh, called me and said, hey, we have two jobs uh, open here with the Cubs. Uh, one was in media relations and the other was in publications. And uh, I said, what, uh, what will these pay, you know? And he says, $13,000 a year. 
And uh, I did the math and I was going to struggle to be able to have a mortgage in Philly, move my family to Chicago and, and, and do what I needed to do at that rate of pay. But he reminded me that there were about 50 people in line for both positions. And I was, I was fortunate to be able to interview for one or the other. And uh, so I asked him if I could speak to the boss, the general manager, Dallas Green. And um, he said, sure, but don't ask him about money because we've got we've got so many people that are interested in this. Um, you know, we're going to be able to pay whatever we feel like paying. So I arranged it. I told him I need to speak to Dallas for a minute. And um, I always I teach at Pepperdine as well as the scouting and the TV uh, responsibilities that I have. And I always tell students, uh, and I may have mentioned it in your class at USC, that, you know, you, you have to be different. You have to figure out a way to be different. If everybody uh, in the lobby of the, the prospective company that people are trying to go to work for all have gone to great schools and have great GPAs and have done all these other things, how are they different? How, who's going to get hired out of that situation if it's, if, it's, uh, if it's not, you know, a friend or a family type of thing? So I really didn't have anything to make me different. And um, for whatever reason, perhaps divine, um, I got Dallas on the phone and I said, hey, thank you for the minute. And he says, yeah, you know, we've got a lot of people that are interested in these jobs. Um, so, you know, keep it, keep it brief and, and understand that, you know, I, I don't want to talk about finances here. You don't even, you haven't even been hired yet. I said, well, I'd like you to consider something. I'd like you to consider paying me $1,000 uh, to move back home from Philly to Chicago and paying me $15,000. And I started to continue my, my thought and he interrupted me. And he said, I thought I told you don't talk about money. I said, well, I just need a minute of your time. I'm not finished yet. And he said, all right, wrap it up. I mean, he was not happy. And uh, I said, you know, if, if you would consider that, I would, I would love to be able to apply for both jobs because I know I can do both jobs for you. And you'll save salary, you'll save the benefits that go on with a full-time employee. Uh, the raises, you'll be giving one person a raise going forward. And I, I, I need it. I, I need the, uh, the extra couple thousand and the chance to move back home. My dad is sick. Uh, my mom doesn't drive a car. And, you know, she's taking a bus and a couple train, a train and a couple buses to the hospital to see my dad. And I uh, said, come in tomorrow. So I went the next day and uh, interviewed and, and uh, was blessed to have the opportunity to get both jobs. And I, I never had a chance to ask Dallas this question. He's, he's deceased now, but um, he continued to give me more and more opportunity. And I, I kind of tie it together with, uh, you know, if you play golf and you try to play golf with one club, it's going to be a little tough to play with one club. You know, what I brought to the Chicago Cubs was one club. And little by little, he gave me more and more responsibility. And so I ended up with two clubs, three, you know, and, and symbolism here, two clubs, three clubs, four clubs. So that after 13 years with the Cubs, I went to the Giants and I had done just about everything in a baseball front office and uh, which helped me get, you know, get the Giants job, which helped me get the Dodgers job. So all those things kind of worked out. But um, had I not come up with that idea to, to do two jobs, I, I would have been kind of like everybody else, except I wasn't a former player. Uh, I wasn't living in Chicago, even though I knew the Cubs inside and out. It was my team growing up, uh, kind of like you guys with the Dodgers and the Giants. Um, so that's how it all began. And that was 40 years ago. Yeah. And you mentioned your climb kind of culminated in landing the Dodgers general manager job in 2005. And I'm not sure if you knew this at the time, but 
you were the fifth GM in eight years. Uh, well, I knew eight, years, eight years stretch for the Dodgers. And was that ever in the back of your mind as you like carried out the job? And what was your plan to establish a culture with the Dodgers? Well, and get the I, franchise I was moving? well aware of it. I'd been in San Francisco for the thir- 11 years before, and I had seen you know, the constant change. And I've, I've always believed that to establish a good culture, you need continuity. You certainly need continuity of leadership and con- continuity of personnel. Uh, if they're the right, the right group of people type of thing. Um, so I kind of knew what I was getting in for. And I had, uh, I had a couple other opportunities where I was finalist for GM jobs, but I, I, I pulled out of those situations because I didn't think it was the right deal, the right situation, uh, the right organization to, to really try and win all the time. But of course, the Dodgers are different. You know, the Dodgers are always going to compete. They're one of the best franchises in the history of sport, not just in baseball. But think about their their social uh, stand on, on a lot of different things. The first black player and Jackie Robinson, really the one of the first teams with a uh, complex in the Dominican Republic. And then, you know, Dale Nomo from Japan, Chan Ho Park from Korea. Uh, you know, really one of the Fernando Valenzuela and Julio Urias from Mexico, you know, very international and, and, and go and scout and, and, and find players that other people haven't really taken the time at the outset. Everybody scouts those areas now, but not at the, they were not the pioneers in a lot of those places. So I knew it was special and I also knew it had, you know, some turmoil to it. And I knew that I had to establish something that was going to be uh, long lasting and, and be able to be that whenever I would be done with it, that the organization would be happy that they had hired me and the fan base would be proud of their team. And I, I think we accomplished that. Yeah, I mean, you definitely established something long lasting early on because your first pick uh, in your first draft was Clayton Kershaw, a guy who's defined the Dodgers and the sport of baseball for our entire generation. And he just uh, resigned to stay in LA for even longer. What was your process like going into that first draft? Was Clayton your biggest want and need at pick seven? Or were there some other guys you had higher on your board you wanted to end up with? Because we know there's a few pitchers who went ahead of him who didn't really pan out quite as well. And a couple of pitchers who went just a little bit after who went, who ended up doing really well in Tim Linscombe and Max Scherzer. Yeah, there was a, it was really, a, as it turned out, historically a, a tremendous draft high up in the draft. Uh, Logan White was our scouting director, amateur scouting director, and he and his scouts, um, including the late Calvin Jones, who, who just passed away within the last few weeks, um, was the amateur scout in the Texas, Dallas, Texas area. And, um, we liked Clayton a lot. He was a, uh, we thought that he could fit in with our group. We had a lot of high school players who were about to get to the big leagues. So we were going to have a younger group. Uh, he was, as I said, the first high school player taken in that draft. And we also benefited from the year before. The year before, um, Hochaver was the Dodgers' first pick. And he did not sign. So he went back into the draft. And as it turned out, Luke Hochaber was the number one pick in the country that year. Had he been drafted, which he was, but signed by the Dodgers in the 205 draft, he's not available. Detroit, who picked right before us, may have taken Clayton. So we, we kind of benefited a little bit by Hochaber deciding that the Dodgers' offer wasn't what he was looking for and went back into the draft, which moved everybody back one. But, uh, you know, Clayton... I'm not sure what we would have done had Clayton been taken. Uh, 
chance you would have taken maybe one of the other pitchers who went ahead of him, or maybe even you know Lincecum or Scherzer at that point in time. But uh, you know we were very very happy to get Clayton, and within a very short period of time he was he was starting to become somebody who was getting very very close to the big leagues at a very young age. And you look at the record, the three Cy Youngs, the World Series championship, a lot of postseason appearances, a lot of other top five finishes in the Cy Young. One of the best people I've ever been around in the game. Uh, charitable, gives his time, his financial wherewithal. I mean, you, you cross off a lot of a lot of areas that you, you hope your players represent, and he crosses all of them off. Yeah, and though we don't hear much about it now, one thing we found out that isn't in that same draft in the 49th round, you picked a kid out of high school, Paul Goldschmidt, and uh, we dug further into it and found out that the Dodgers didn't offer him a contract that year. And uh, now we, we all know who Paul Goldschmidt is today, but what did well, you see? Players, let me explain when you, when you take somebody that late, yeah. it's because you're going to be a tough sign. Yeah. Okay. And you know yeah. that they're going to probably be going off to college, but you know, you pick them. So you have the right, just in case the player changes his mind. And, uh, and Paul's had a great career. And at that stage of his life, he did not, he was not going to change his mind. So. That's yeah, you're right. We do see that a lot where we see like guys in the 49th round. There's a few cases where those guys pan out, but you're right. Not a lot of them. It was just, I mean, we loved the player and we would have signed him if he said, you know what, I'm going to forego college, you know, but, you know, he wasn't ready to forego college. And so, you know, we didn't, we weren't able to sign him. That doesn't mean that it's not like it's a, it's a lost pick and, and we messed up the pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we knew going in that he was, he was a long shot to do it, but if you don't have the rights to him, you know, you're not going to be able to sign him just in case you get that call in late August. And he says, you know what, I, I've thought about this and I, I think I'd like to turn pro, you know? So anyway. What did you see in him in the 49th round? Cause I mean, if he's falling that far, you know, player or other teams probably not seeing the same thing. I doubt that anyone was thinking he would turn into what he turned into today. So did you have any idea that he would end up being this good? Well, you know, he went to Texas state. I mean, he was a, he was a high profile player. And and so people knew that, that he was going to be a, a strong, strong player. Uh, went to, I think Woodlands, Woodlands high school, maybe in, uh, in Texas. Um, but again, and you, know, you get to that point in the draft and you're willing to take a flyer on somebody just in the event they change their mind. But he was a high profile player at, at that stage. And that's why we took the chance. Again, you know, the history of the draft for legitimate 49th round picks. You know, we got Mike Piazza a little bit after that, which obviously is a historic pick. But, you know, it's it doesn't usually happen that somebody who is ranked that deeply in the draft would end up being a big league player. He was picked in the 49th round, but I can tell you he was not ranked in the 49th round. He was ranked in the first couple of rounds. That's so, really interesting. Totally different deal. Yeah. Um, so before you became the, the Dodgers GM, you mentioned you were the director of player operations and then the assistant GM of the Giants. And that was during Barry Bonds' reign of terror across the MLB. And some of the greatest seasons we've ever seen uh, from a baseball player. Uh, what was it like witnessing Barry's dominance firsthand and also behind the scenes? He was probably the, the, um, the greatest player I have seen on an everyday basis. 
Um, he could play, he could hit, obviously, um, drew a lot of walks. So his strike zone recognition had to be precise, which it was uh, tremendous power, uh, a very, very good outfielder. I saw him break in with Pittsburgh as a center fielder, moved to left field, um, really great, great outfielder. And you look at his stolen base numbers. When you look at the home runs and you look at the stolen bases, there's nobody that's ever done that. There's, there's just him. I mean, nobody, you know, Babe Ruth won close to 100 games on either side of 100 as a pitcher. So unique talent in, 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 in the Babe. Uh, you know, Barry, to me, different, not a pitcher. You know, Ruth and Otani are, are probably a conversation at some point. Um, but Barry's ability to hit, to run, to, to think the game and understand the game and have a photographic memory to it uh, and a strike zone that was very, very small. He rarely chased a pitch out of his zone. Great player. And, and somebody who my first year with him back in, I think, 95, um, you know, we, we didn't have a whole lot of conversations. Uh, and then little by little, we started to, to have conversations. And I think Barry was somebody who was very protective and in, in who he brought into his inner circle and who he trusted and, and who he wanted to spend time with and talk with. And, uh, you know, it took a while, but I would say that, you know, within a year or two of me going to San Francisco, you know, we had a, a bunch of conversations on the game, on different aspects of, of life and things like that, but phenomenal, phenomenal player. Best I've ever been around on an everyday basis. And I, I'm not talking about a guy like Willie Mays that, you know, I, I saw as a kid, I'm leaving that era out. I'm just talking about those in my 40 years of seeing somebody every day, day after day after day, and all due respect to Mike Trout. I've watched Mike Trout play against the Dodgers is what I've watched Mike Trout do. So, you know, you don't have the same bearing. You, you learn a lot more when you see somebody every day. But Bonds, greatest hitter I've ever seen, position player on a daily basis, and Greg Maddox uh, on the pitching side, same, same type. One thing I didn't get to ask you in class, but I was really curious as, as a Giants fan is after you left the Giants to take the Dodgers job, they went on to win three World Series titles during your time in LA. So I was just really curious, was it ever bittersweet to see your old team have so much success or was it just kind of rivalry as usual between the Dodgers and the Giants? Uh, it was rivalry as usual. You know, um, I was, after we get eliminated, you know, I, I would never wish bad on anybody you can't, I don't think you can really do that. Um, and not, you know, and not, you know, I don't know, whatever, but I, I would never wish bad on anybody. And I had a lot of friends there. I had a lot of associates there. Dodgers and Giants. I mean, we fought to the end all the time. We beat the Dodgers. We beat the Giants many, many times in, in standings and in games, you know, by, you know, I think over my tenure, we may have, I don't know, had 50 more, if, you, if it was standings, might have been a 50-game advantage over them. Um, but they did win three World Series, and I had a lot of associates there that I had known. And then once we were out of it, you know, I wasn't going to root against them. I didn't root for them, but I, I didn't want anything bad happening to them. And my son also worked there. My son also scouted there. So, you know, for a, a parent to um, not want their child to experience the ultimate in anything, any career endeavor, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that's a healthy thing. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, whenever we were done, 
I, I would watch their games and I, I wish I wish them well, especially because my son was involved in it. Yeah, and one move. That'd be fair, wouldn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. And uh, one move you you made for the Dodgers to help the Dodgers try and compete with the Giants during that success was the trade to send James Loney and four other prospects to the Red Sox for Carl Crawford, Adrian Gonzalez, jo- uh, Josh Beckett, and Nick Punto. What was your thought pr- thought process in making that trade? And were you kind of surprised that you could pull off that trade maybe a little bit? Well, there was a lot of different factors that were involved in that. Uh, you know, we look back and, and, and you know, on a, on a date in history and, and we, we, you know, we, we think about it. Um, I have to go back to really where we were as an organization. On April 30th to May 1st of that year, 2012, ownership changed. And we had been through a rough 212. Fan base started to wonder. Uh, we didn't draw real well for the first time in a long time, in the 11-12 period of time. And new ownership came in, and they wanted to make a statement. And they've been making statements ever since. Uh, they've done great work, and, and they just did it again with, with Freddie Freeman. So, you know, they wanted to win, and they wanted to show the people of L.A. that they were real. And they weren't going to let money stand in the way of making the team better. Plus, we also had a pretty big business venture coming up. We had a chance to have another cable TV deal, another regional sports network. Uh, and so they changed that, and they, they sold that package for a historic, historic sum. Part of that was probably because of the team, which played hard, didn't make the playoffs, got eliminated within, I think, 48 hours of the last game from the wild card. But uh, people knew that this was going to be exciting from here on, that the ownership was invested in it, that the ownership cared about the product, cared about making the fan experience as great as they could make it, cared about being involved in the community and all those things. And so that trade was kind of the, the headline to it, to, you know, to see that. But if you go back even just a little bit before that, in that draft, we drafted Seeger, signed him. We also signed Urias internationally, which we hadn't done a whole lot of international work in the previous era, and also Yasiel Puig. So you look back at the 212 season, you've, you've got some pretty key moments in there that, that changed the direction of the franchise under new ownership. The Puig signing got us back in Latin America and Cuba. The, the signing of Julio Urias, 20-game winner last year, closed out the 2020 World Series and the National League pennant-winning game. The drafting of Seager, great, great shortstop, great person, and, and that big trade. And, and those things started to change the momentum, change the culture, change the expectation, both on the inside and the outside of the organization. Yeah, and my next question is, you kind of touched on it a little bit at the end there, but you mentioned guys like Yastiel Puig, Arias, signing Seeger, and some other moves like signing Granky or Ryu. Back-to-back days, no less. Two yeah. Cy Young runners-up on back-to-back days, a Saturday and a Sunday. Doesn't <laughs> yeah. happen too often. No. And then uh, just kind of going off that, was, was there a move that you made during your time with the Dodgers that was like a favorite move? And uh, could you talk oh. about a little why that might have been your favorite? Um, it, it's tough to say favorite. I think um, some key moves 
and not everything I did turned out. There's a couple of free agents that, you know, I wish I hadn't, hadn't signed, you know, big outfielder. Uh, people talk about in a Hall of Fame conversation now that I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily on the same page with that. But I think you go back and uh, the first deal uh, I made from the GM chair was acquiring Andre Ethier from Milton Bradley. And uh, Andre Ethier became one of the great Dodgers, ranks in the top 10, a lot of offensive categories, great in the community, was really an excellent player to add to our group that had Russell Martin in it and Chad Billingsley and Jonathan Broxson and James Loney, who you've mentioned, uh, and Matt Kemp. And so you know, that was a key move. I think um, signing Granke and Ryu, Granke on a Saturday, Ryu the next day on a Sunday, uh, you're talking about two really good pitchers to really put into your rotation. Uh, and probably the Manny Ramirez deal. You know, we were, um, we were a team that was, uh, was okay, but we really needed a lift. And uh, that deal came about the morning of the deadline. It wasn't something that was worked on for months. And, you know, I tried to acquire Adrian Gonzalez for, since April. We acquired him in August. So, you know, things sometimes take a longer time. That deal came about the morning of the trading deadline. And um, he came in here and hit 19 homers, drove in, I think, 50-something runs, hit almost 400, and really taught our younger players how to win and took a lot of pressure off them. And uh, with, with Manny here, we went to the LCS in 08 and 09. And uh, you know, so that, that deal, I think, was another thing that kind of um, showed that we were real and that we wanted to compete and that we were willing to do what we needed to do to do it. I remember talking to uh, my, my top personnel, Kim Ng and, and Vance Lovelace and Rick Regazzo and, uh, and saying, you know, when Manny took left field the first night, uh, I was thinking, you know, yesterday, you know, yesterday, the day before yesterday, you know, this guy wasn't even in our plans. He wasn't even, we weren't going to watch him run out to left field. And then do everything he did, you know, this first year with us predominantly. But uh, I think those, you know, getting Andre right out of the gate a couple of weeks after I came here, um, Manny, and of course the two pitchers back to back. That's it's not easy to do, or not really common to get two runner, Cy Young runners up within 24 hours of each other. Signed Greki Saturday night and Ryu by noon on Sunday. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about the Dodgers success, but it does, I, you know, like to shift over a little bit and focus on last season. Uh, the Giants had a little bit more success, which we hadn't really seen since 2014 or 2016. Um, with you having spent a good portion of your career in San Francisco and in LA, what was it like for you to see the Dodgers and the Giants battle it out for the division last year uh, and then in the divisional round? And then do you have any thoughts about who's going to win the NL West uh, this this season, kind of leaving out the Padres? Because I don't, know, I don't think any of us want the Padres to win. Well, I, I'll answer the last part of your question first. I don't, I don't think anybody can beat the Dodgers. I don't think anybody is good enough to beat the Dodgers. And now you got Freeman in the lineup. You know, that is such a good, good team. And, and what they do now, and the Giants learned it a little bit last year, some of their younger players. Um, the Dodgers do know how to win. They've all been there for many years. They get it. They understand the, the tenor of a season, the ups and downs of it. I don't think there's any team in the National League that's going to beat them. And uh, we'll see about the American League if, if that if that 
last series takes place. Um, last year, I thought it was was so exciting for baseball and for for the state of California and for fan bases that are are all over the country and all over the world that they could watch two teams go at it every day for months on end. And then to have the series play out and to have it played out. And you're talking about, you know, last at bat victory to decide who was going home and who was winning, you know? Uh, and I, I thought it was phenomenal and, and that it had taken so long to get to that point because Giants and the Dodgers hadn't played for a long time. And in that type of setting, I guess 1962 may have been the last time I could be wrong on that. It was a playoff series between the two franchises because uh, they tied in the 62 season, but uh, unique. And, uh, you know, we watched Red Sox Yankees from across the coast for a long time and LCSs and, and different things like that. Um, the business championship series. So, it was good to see those two franchises get after it for a while. And then to I don't this... see that happening this year. Sorry. <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> but I, you were the Giants memorabilia behind you there, Jack. I don't blame you. I mean, getting Freeman is adding to a, a murderer's row even further. Uh, they're just, they're so good. And it, it sucks that probably not going to see them be bad for a very long time. Yeah. And to end this off on a little bit of a fun note, uh, Jack and I are both from San Jose and since moving off the MLB front office work, he became a scout for the sharks. And, uh, just curious how, how you like working with the sharks in hockey now. And, uh, how do you like the city of San Jose? You know what? I, uh, I'm honored to be able to work in the NHL as I've been honored to work the 40 years in baseball. Um, it's an honor to work in pro sports and my passion for hockey goes back to when I was just a little boy, just like baseball. And uh, that I've paid attention and that I've made contacts and I've networked and I've spent a lot of my winter, a week or so every winter with NHL teams way before I was hired in San Jose um, to learn the business and to have conversations with the leadership, uh, curiosity and a lot of exchange of ideas. And that uh, that they came to me a few years ago and we decided to to do a partnership. I scout for them. I, uh, I try to help their younger executives and coaches in, in a little bit of just a little bit of a leadership role. Um, you know, try to be helpful. And so it's, it's an honor. And I've been going to San Jose for years, you know, when I was in, with the giants and, you know, to, to get my hockey fix, I would, I would drive down one Oh one or two eighty from San Fran down to San Jose and spent a lot of nights in that arena. And so it's cool to be back there and to, to be part of a franchise that's right now, you know, trying to get its footing again. And uh, guys have played hard this year. They have played really hard. Uh, in fact, I'll be going out to uh, see him tonight against L.A. Well, I think we know if you've got your fingerprints on a franchise, there's, it's a good chance that they can bring themselves up and, and become something successful. We really appreciate your time coming on and talking baseball, and we wish you luck this season with, with Sportsnet and, and continued luck with the Sharks. And, yeah, we just really appreciate you taking your time to come on. Well, thank you, Jack. You too, Ryan. appreciate being out here. Wish you guys the best. Wish thank you, Mr. Clay. And hope your, your career endeavors and your dreams and aspirations, I hope you exceed them by miles. Well, thank you, and go Giants. Thank you. Go Dodgers. <laughs> <laughs>